Greetings, friends. Welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories about architects, designers, builders, craftspeople, and historic preservationists. History informs the future, and so do our guests. I'm your host, Peter Miller. Every year in the December issue of Traditional Building, we celebrate ecclesiastical design, classic examples of church work, most of it new, traditionally designed houses of worship. In this year's Traditional Building Church issue, we write about David Height of Civium Architects, Topeka, Kansas. David's firm designs churches, commercial buildings, libraries. He does master plans and historic restoration renovation. David Hyde is very active in his community. He has served as the president of AIA Kansas and as the city of Topeka's Landmarks Commissioner. He is a member of both the AIA and the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. A graduate of the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture, including the Rome Studies Program, David is a very well-trained classicist. David has also trained other young classicists as the architect-in-residence at Benedictine College. Welcome, David Height. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here this morning. Did you come by your interest and expertise in ecclesiastical design through your religion or through architecture school, some formative life experience, a Catholic school perhaps, a Lutheran upbringing? How do you come by being so prolific designing churches? Well, Peter, while I'm certainly blessed with the career I have today, and I'm excited to see where it'll go in the future, I can't say I set out with the goal to be a church designer. Um, looking back at my career and how I've gotten to where I am, I have to be thankful for a series of somewhat independent choices that have led me to where I am. Um, the first of these, of course, was my decision to attend the University of Notre Dame. Uh, even that, though, I didn't make that choice due to my interest in what the School of Architecture was teaching, but more because of the general character of the broader university. But I was fortunate to start at Notre Dame the same year that Thomas Gordon Smith became chair of the school, and thanks to him, I was exposed to classical architecture and urbanism. Uh, the year living and studying in Rome, you mentioned the Rome Studies program. Uh, that's part of the program at Notre Dame. Uh, was when I really, when the value of traditional architecture really clicked with me. Uh, living in a traditional city like Rome and being able to experience the great works of classical architecture really drove home to me the value of, of classicism even in our contemporary society. After graduating and a few years of work, uh, I returned to South Bend to work with uh, my former professor, Duncan Stroik, when he was starting up his eponymous practice. And even that decision wasn't driven by an interest in designing churches, but more an interest to have an opportunity to see how we design and construct classically designed buildings in the modern design and construction environment. Uh, but it gave me the opportunity to work on some of his early seminal works like uh, the Thomas Aquinas Chapel, Thomas Aquinas College Chapel and the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And then I returned to Kansas and went to work for a firm uh, that while it wasn't traditionally focused, it did do a lot of work with the local archdiocese. And being the Catholic guy from Notre Dame, I was seen as the uh, natural choice to work on those church projects. Uh, while the projects weren't necessarily focused on classical solutions, they often allowed me to design in a context of older traditional church buildings. 
And it allowed me to develop my project management and client interaction skills that are so important to successfully maneuvering those types of projects. Slowly, I did see an interest in more traditional designs grow, mirroring what I think has been a more national trend uh, that certainly traditional building uh, has documented through the years. I found that I enjoyed working with the sorts of people that participate on building committees and found great fulfillment in completing uh, these types of church projects. So I began to purposely focus more on obtaining church projects, ultimately deciding to begin Civium Architects so I could focus more on traditional church design. It's like if it, when you've done the work, you you can get the same kind of work. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas Chapel. That was on the cover of traditional building. Gosh, when did you work on that? 15 years ago. And it won a Palladio Award, I'm yes. pretty sure. And, of course, Duncan got all the credit for that. But uh, you were right there working on it, too. Uh, me and several other young architects were in the trenches, yes, but obviously right. we were all being guided by uh, by the inspiration of, of Professor Strick. The the unsung trench diggers. So so tell us about the meaning of your firm's name, Civium. Yeah, so Civium is a Latin word which translates as for the citizens. Uh, it's the same root, same Latin root that we get English words such as civic and civil and city from. Um, so we pronounce our name as Civium, which is actually kind of a anglicization, if you want to say, of it, so that we can help draw that connection to those words. Although my ordained clients, who are better versed in Latin than I, uh, like to point out that the proper Latin pronunciation should be Civium. Civium. Uh, Civium would be the proper Latin pronunciation, I'm often reminded. But I chose Civium because I thought it reflected a few key things, a few key principles I was hoping to demonstrate in the work that we would be able to do uh, under, under my own firm. And first, that was to remember that architecture is probably the most public of the arts. Um, what we make is used and experienced by people. It's not just looked at, hanging on the wall or sitting on a pedestal. Uh, the buildings we build, the places we make form the stage set where daily life plays out. And I firmly believe that better buildings can make for better living. Um, so we try to remember that we build for people, not just for the sake of creating a beautiful building to gaze at. Second, I believe um, the city is the highest form of architecture, and we shouldn't just build in isolation, uh, but rather that you know together the buildings we build form the cities where we live communally. And I wanted to build a practice that focuses on public, civic, community-focused projects such as churches, libraries, and schools to contribute to that broader public good. Uh, lastly, to be a citizen is to be part of a greater community. Uh, but citizens have both privileges and responsibilities in that community. And I think it's important to remember that, that as architects, we have a responsibility to build better for the common good. I'm glad to hear you talk about how a building makes us feel, not just looking at it or, as you say, gazing at a pretty building, but how does it make us feel? And the reason this is relevant to me at the moment is that we're about to teach 10th graders at the Washington Latin School about classicism, and we have set out to make their understanding of how a building makes them feel part of that education. Now, this is probably connected to what you just described, David, but I've 
I've, I've read that you have said architecture with a deeper cultural meaning. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, Peter. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, this is the real power that classical and traditional architecture can have over a more modernist mind or contemporary mindset about design. Um, but, you know, when a group of people come together in a common pursuit and share experiences over time, that forms a culture uh, that has shared traditions and common myths and a, a collective memory. And we can apply that concept, whether we speak about a family unit or a parish or a village or a nation, uh, these traditions and myths become associated with the places and the buildings where, where they occur. Uh, I mean, I think we can all think about some of our strongest memories growing up, whether they're positive or traumatic moments in our lives. The physical setting of the environment is an important part of the memory for us. And so our memories are intertwined with the places uh, where we where we form them. And when these associations of place, event, and emotion become collective within a culture, they give a symbolic meaning to the, the, cert, the forms and materials and details uh, that become understood by all. And this is how traditional architecture reflects culture and history that it develops within. So as architects, we can use these forms and these materials and details in new buildings to better communicate their intended purpose through that symbolic reference. Interesting. David, when you're working on a campus building or a master plan, who is the client? The, the, if it's a chapel, the priest, the president, or the parishioners? That's a very interesting question, Peter. And I think it's one that me and my teams, uh, you know, we ask ourselves that at some juncture in, in every project. I think ideally we want to say that the client is the end user of the building, that parishioner who comes to worship in the church or the patron who comes to seek a book out of the library. But in my experience, I found that any public project, the client is ultimately really a multi-headed entity. Uh, you know, in the case of a Catholic church, those heads might be the bishop and the diocesan administration. Then there's the parish pastor. And then there's the parish building committee. And then there's just all of the general parishioners who make up the church. Uh, you know, in a community organization like a public library, you know, those heads may represent the board of directors, the CEO, the staff, and the patrons. I think at the core, they all want the same thing, the same positive outcome, but each places their priorities somewhere different, and that causes them to view the project and what makes success a little differently. And that's why I found that uh, with my new clients, but before we can start talking about their building, we first have to discuss the design process. We have to clearly define the lines of communication and who ultimately has the responsibility and the authority to make decisions. Because uh, there will come those points where, despite all of the discussion, folks are going to disagree, and we have to be able to, to find resolution and move beyond that. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that architects have to master is balancing satisfying the client who hires us and pays us uh, while always keeping in mind providing the good experience for the numerous building users who will follow for many years. Wow, it's, it's sort of hurting cats, though. I would imagine building internal agreement or consensus among the decision makers when you have more than one. It can be a challenge, but again, it's uh, finding that common ground and helping remind everyone that you know we're all pursuing a, a, a common purpose and a common good at the core. And reminding them of what that common ground is. Right. What is it about churches 
and universities that lend themselves so well to classical design? I think the answer has to do with that these are institutions, whether we talk about a, a, a church or a particular denomination of faith or we talk about a university, that they span beyond the current time and the current members. Uh, they reach back to connect today to their past, to their origins, and also to look to project it forward into the future. Uh, and so traditions play a major part in this. You know, traditions embody the character of the institution and help preserve it and carry it forward. Uh, you know, in the case of a, of a church or of a religion, we can talk about religious beliefs, their prayers, their liturgical rites that remain largely unchanged from generation to generation that bind today's followers to the generations of faithful who came before them and connect them to those to come after them in the future. In the case of a university, you know, we can talk about all of our older universities. Uh, you know, they have academic traditions, student traditions, annual events, sporting rivalries. These are all different forms of tradition that meld to make the university and, and create a common bond between today's students and the alumni of past generations. So I, I think the leaders of these types of institutions tend to understand and appreciate the value of, of tradition. Uh, and so they can project that to building, too. I mean, after all, I think we can think about many of the older and important, well-noted universities of our country. And, a part of their identity is certainly tied up in the architecture and, and the beauty of their campuses. I don't know why this just came to mind all of a sudden, David, but um, we've been talking about Notre Dame, your alma mater, and uh, you mentioned sports teams at universities. I remember an interview with Lou Holtz, remember the former coach of Notre Dame, yes. trying to convince the 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 head priest of Notre Dame University that he wanted to change the gold football helmet into something green and the priest said absolutely positively not we're sticking with the gold helmet and only then did i make the connection between the gold dome in the center of notre dame's campus and the gold football helmet on the football team yes <laughs> that was good branding on the, on the part of 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 that notre dame priest now there's a story about your design of immaculate catholic church in saint mary's kansas in the uh, current December issue of Traditional Building. It's our annual ecclesiastical issue. And it, it's a Romanesque-style church, but preceded by a prairie-style church, which, as I understand it, this new church replaced. Can you tell us about this project and the thinking behind its creation? So the story really starts that the campus that St. Mary's Academy and College occupies today was actually begun in the late 1800s by the Jesuits uh, when they were missionaries on the Kansas Prairie. Uh, and the original Immaculata Church was built in 1909 at the heart of the campus of what was then a, a men's college run by the Jesuits. Uh, later, the Jesuits would actually convert from being a college to being uh, the upper portion of the Jesuit seminary here in the United States. And it's estimated that nearly a thousand young men were ordained as priests uh, on the steps of the sanctuary of, of that church. It's said uh, that this church was the primary reason why Archbishop Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X, agreed to purchase the property uh, and found the academy and college there. Shortly after the SSPX took possession of the property uh, and they were trying to refurbish the church to, to begin using it, it was lost to a fire in, in 1978. 
Immediately, everyone set about trying to make plans to rebuild the church, uh, which had been a, a beautiful example of, of what I call a prairie Gothic style, uh, in, in that it's not that it's not a high French Gothic or even a collegiate Gothic. You know, the, the t details are a little humbler and more simple, and it's it's built of the materials you can find in, in the local area. But it's nonetheless Gothic church and was quite beautiful. Um, unfortunately, their plans to rebuild never found traction and got going right away. And by uh, the turn of the century, by 2000, they began to realize uh, that with over 2,000 members now in the parish community, that uh, rebuilding a church in the footprint uh, and in the like of the original church wouldn't be big enough to serve the needs of the growing parish and school. Um, so they stopped those plans and began to investigate uh, building a bigger church. Uh, but it became apparent that the size of church required to effectively serve today, they estimate nearly 4,500 faithful among the parish today, uh, that it would be too large to fit on the original church site and would really compete with the needs of the academic campus. You know, adequate parking would be difficult to achieve, and daily church functions would conflict with activities on the campus. Uh, so in 2017, permission was granted to relocate the church to an off-campus site. Uh, and so the new church is located adjacent to the already existing cemetery on a high spot overlooking the academy, uh, the town of St. Mary's and, and the Kansas River Valley. While the Immaculata was allowed to be relocated, the general house of the SSPX did require, or is still expecting, that a church will be reconstructed on the site of the original Immaculata on campus someday. So I suggested to, to, the, to the rector and to the building committee that we should reserve the Gothic style uh, for that church to recall the original church in, in that spot, and further to avoid over-association and confusion between the two churches, that the new Immaculata should have a distinct style of its own. Um, so after some discussion, we settled on the Romanesque because of its compatibility with the Gothic uh, and also that many of the old buildings the Jesuits had constructed on the academic campus had Romanesque influences to them too. So it wouldn't be a totally foreign building in, in the context. So David, in the story that uh, I just referenced um, about your Immaculata Church, we quoted you as saying that the church families have a professional life that is congruent with their faith life. I want to hear. I want to hear more about that. Sure. Uh, so when Michael, the author uh, of the article in the magazine, uh, interviewed me for it, uh, the first question he asked me was, "Why such a large church in such a small town?" He had some familiarity with Kansas and had confirmed his suspicion that you know St. Mary's barely three thousand people in its official population, and yet we were building a church that seats over fifteen hundred. And so I explained the context of the setting to him that, you know, the traditional Latin mass being offered by the priest of the Society of St. Pius X and the K-12 Academy that they operate there uh, has become a major magnet to people from all around the country who are seeking that form of more traditional faith. Uh, the academy has grown to nearly a thousand students now and families continue to relocate to the St. Mary's area so they can send their children to the school. So Michael's next question then was, well, how can such a small community support such large growth? Uh, and I, I had to tell him that, you know, in, in my time working with the community there, I've been awed 
by the amount of entrepreneurship I've discovered taking place in the community. I've been amazed at the number of highly successful nationally operating companies uh, that are just quietly located in St. Mary's, Kansas, that were started by and built up by individuals who attend the church. And these businesses continue to grow and gladly employ the people who are moving to the community now. I think today we, we tend to compartmentalize faith, many people do, from the rest of their life. You know, being faithful is something we do for an hour on Sunday when we go to church, and then it's back to the rest of our life for many. Uh, that's not true in the St. Mary's community. You see their faith in, in everyday practice. Uh, personally, for me, it's one of the things I've been most moved by while working with them on this project. Uh, it's made me reflect on my own faith and how I can live it better and to, to ask what examples can I draw from them about it. I mean, a faith isn't a faith unless it's practiced. And to your point, you know, practice in everyday life. In again, back to your Immaculate Catholic Church design, there is decorative painting and columns which are very intricate, as if hand carved. Uh, what kinds of allied artists and craftspeople do you work with regularly, and how do you describe their contribution to your work? Well, Peter, I'm going to divide my answer to that in, into two groups. Talk first about craftspeople and then decorative artists. Um, the distinction by craftspeople, I'm talking about the building trades, the masons, the stone carvers, the carpenters, the plasters, uh, who, who build the building itself, give it its physical form. And their craft is essential to the successful construction of the building, especially a traditional one. For example, on the Immaculata, we were so fortunate to uh, be assigned a masonry foreman from the masonry company uh, who really takes great pride in his work still today. So he would regularly call me over and call me up on the scaffolding, review details about the joining and the coursing and the flashing with me, and, and make suggestions that he thought there was a better way to do it uh, than what we had detailed. Uh, so I appreciated him sharing that expertise and, and for the betterment of the project, and I learned a lot from him along the way. You know, I think there's a lot that's been written bemoaning the loss of craft in our modern construction industry, but I'm pleased to say that I think, you know, if you set the expectation and you hold to it, good quality, good craftsmanship still can be found. I think it's also good that, to know that uh, we can find craft in newer building materials and, and newer methods. The exterior of the Immaculata, while largely brick, is accented with cast stone, uh, not natural stone. All of these accent pieces were cast in custom-built molds, which was a decision made for the economy over natural limestone. Now, as to the decorative arts, perhaps you can say they're a little less essential, uh, but when we can collaborate with decorative art, uh, whether that's including statuary or mosaics or paintings in the church, I think it really collectively shines a light on the beauty of the building and creates an, an additional layer of evangelization uh, for the faithful coming to the church. You know, the artwork that Evergreen Studios and Pedrini Sculptors from Carrari, Italy, created for the Immaculata, I think really transformed the experience for the visitor to the building. Last question, David. This has been fun. Um... What advice can you give young architecture, design, construction professionals about advancing their career? Move to Kansas, come work for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hopefully we can uh, land a couple more great church projects. And yeah, I'll be looking to fill the ranks <laughs> of the studios. Yes. 
Uh, now, I, you know, I think there's a few key points I've sort of collected as I look back over what's helped me get where I am that I, I share with either young interns that I work with or with the students that I've taught. Uh, and there's a couple key things, I think. One, I always tell students, be patient. Uh, we don't learn it all in school. We learn a lot of important things, but we still have a lot of, to learn after we complete our academic studies. There's a lot to learn in the office. Uh, so embrace every assignment, no matter how menial it might seem, and, and ask questions and learn from the older architects who you work with. And, and then don't think that that learning is something you only do in your early years. Keep learning. Every project I find teaches us something we can use in the, in the next. I encourage young architects, take out the earbuds. Uh, instead, be connected to what's happening right around you in the office. There's so much to learn just by listening to the conversations around you. Uh, whether that's two designers discussing their design concepts or it's the project manager on the phone with the superintendent in the field trying to solve a problem. Uh, pay attention to how they talk to each other and what they say. There's so much that you can, you can gain from that. I know there's a lot of firm owners who will disagree with me on this next one. I recommend changing jobs at least once in your career. I think it's important to go to a firm that's different in some important way. The size of the firm the general design style of their work, what types of buildings they design, the region of the country where they work. But it's important to get a different perspective. Uh, there isn't really only one way to create good architecture. There's, there's lots of multiple answers out there to that. A couple last quick things, never stop sketching, whether you're drawing what you see in the world around you or whether you're drawing what you envisioned in your mind. I think it's always important to maintain that skill. Uh, and that's one I think that as your career advances and you're busy, it's hard to keep up. I, I know I lament that I don't sketch as much as I would like to, but I think it's important to keep that up. Uh, and lastly, never stop traveling. Never stop observing the world around you every day. Uh, I think there's moments of inspiration uh, that we can find everywhere in, in our daily lives, walking down the street or, or traveling to a new city. That is great advice point by point that's a whole story idea for me david this has been great uh, thank you for your thorough preparation and insightful answers to these questions uh, that can conclude our building tradition podcast this morning um, themed to ecclesiastical design which you do so well and connected also to uh, the story about immaculata catholic church that appears this month in traditional building. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Our Building Tradition podcast is produced by Ann White, with technical assistance from Nate Gruca. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.